Good morning, church family. Um, as Royden said, my name's Heather, and I'm from the Wednesday morning Bible study group. And just very briefly, Kate gave me a, the reading for this morning, and the print must have been about 30, the font. So I was wondering why she gave me such a big font. And then I started, then I thought, okay, I started adding the ages of the group the ladies in my group, and by the time I reached 700, I stopped. So, so that's the accumulative ages, wisdom, knowledge of our group, but above all else, years and years of God's grace, and we're very thankful for that. Amen. <clears throat> so our Bible reading this morning is from Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 to 21. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, 
enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you to our ladies for serving us this morning, Heather for that reading and Linda for the prayer earlier on. Won't you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, once again we come with nothing but our need, with um, hearts that tend towards hardness and coldness, with eyes that are failing and ears that are stopped to the good news of your grace. And Father, will you speak? Will you speak in the power of your Spirit through your Son? Will you reveal yourself? Help us to have an encounter with you this morning that we might leave here changed people. We long for that, Lord. In our better moments, we longed to be conformed to the likeness of our King. But we can't do it ourselves. Will you have mercy on us once again? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to start by playing a word association game. Are you ready? What do you associate with the word freedom? I'm sure there are many ideas. Whatever you thought of, I bet it was good. I bet there wasn't a negative thought in the room. Freedom is pretty much in our thinking an unqualified good. You've never heard anyone argue against freedom, have you? People fight for freedom. They fight for sexual freedom, financial freedom, political freedom. We may argue over how to get there so you can have the economic freedom fighters and the freedom front plus, both claiming to know the way to freedom and obviously by very different routes. But we all agree, freedom is good and free is good. Mahala. Who says no to a free lunch or a free ride? Or a free bucket hat from KFC. Look at that. Isn't she a beauty? Free. We even want our food free. Fat free, sugar free, lactose free. And while we're shopping for free food, we want the experience to be hassle free. And afterwards to go home, we take the freeway. Freedom is good. Right? All of those connotations, the word there suggests something good. It means no constraints, no obstacles, no barriers. Freedom means you get to do you. That's how we think about freedom. When we come to the Bible's version of freedom, there's some shocks for us. First shock, some of what we call freedom is in fact slavery. And some of what we call slavery is in fact freedom. The Bible turns freedom on its head. Second shock. We have completely missed at least half, at least half, of what it means to be free. 
We obsess over freedom from, freedom from constraints, freedom from obstacles, barriers, pain, inconvenience. Ours is a freedom from. But that's only half a freedom. And therefore it's a stunted freedom, it's a distorted freedom. Our freedom is independence. That's not biblical freedom. Biblical freedom is so much richer. It's freedom from, but it's also freedom for. It's independence, but it's also dependence. Independence from the wrong things, dependence on the right things. Freedom from and freedom for. Our passage this morning, uh, the one Heather read for us, is hopefully going to really open up this biblical vision of freedom. And hopefully we're going to see that it is far richer than our own vision, which is in fact no freedom at all. But because there's so much to say, we're going to have to do it in two parts, two sermons. So in this sermon, we're going to focus on freedom from. And then in the next one, which happens to be in five weeks' time, because we're pausing for a series in Women's Month. Uh, So in five weeks' time, we're going to focus on freedom for. So just bank that, keep it at the back of your mind. In the interim, bear in mind, remember, we're going to focus on freedom for Again, the next time we gather in five weeks' time. Let's have a look. Freedom from and freedom for. We start with freedom from. Galatians 5 verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. That's the banner over the whole section. And as I just said today, we're going to focus on what Christ has set us free from. Under three headings. Freedom from, the battle for freedom... And the heart of freedom. So firstly, freedom from. What has Christ freed us from? Well, Paul is very clear with the Galatians. Christ has freed us from two opposing slaveries. Slavery to the law, on the one hand. Slavery to sin, on the other hand. Or slavery to the good and slavery to the bad. Let's start with slavery to the law. Here's one of those Bible shocks. How can the law be slavery? I mean, Paul himself writes elsewhere that the law is holy, just, and good. And it's not surprising because it's God's law. And God is holy, just, and good. How can God's good law enslave us? Paul says that there are at least three ways that the law enslaves us. We are chained up by... The yoke of the law, the judgment of the law, and the performance of the law. The yoke, the judgment, and the performance. In other words, Christ has freed us from the yoke, the judgment, and the performance of the law. And what we're going to see in all three cases is that the problem is not with the law. The problem is with us. Okay, so we start with the yoke of the law. 5 verse 1 again. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Paul calls the law a yoke of slavery. Why? Well, a yoke is what attaches an ox to the load that that ox must pull. 
That's what a yoke did. That's how a yoke functioned. Paul is telling the Galatians that if they get circumcised, they are attaching themselves to the whole of the Mosaic law. That's what they're doing. That is the load they must bear, and they must bear the whole load. Not just part of it, the whole load. He says that by hitching themselves to the law with the yoke of circumcision, when they already have Jesus, what they're actually saying is, Christ must be fulfilled by Moses. Christ must be fulfilled by Moses. But the witness of God's word is exactly the opposite. Moses has been fulfilled by Christ. We don't complete Christ with the law. Christ has completed the law. Let's just try and translate the image of the ox and the yoke into something that we can digest. So you are moving house. Imagine with me. You are moving house. I know it's traumatic. I hate to take you there, but you're moving house. You pack everything into the trailer. The movers arrive with a truck to pull the trailer but you go and you, you wave the truck away. And you go and stand in front of the trailer. And now you're trying to hitch yourself to the trailer with the back of your belt. And now, of course, the foreman of the moving company, he's a professional. And he has to, I mean, he's forced to ask you, what the heck are you doing? It's his professional duty. You say, listen, I don't need this truck. I'm going to pull the trailer. He says to you, that's not going to be possible. You say, no, it's fine. Because there are paper cups in the trailer. And they are light. He says, yeah, I think I did see some paper cups. But I also saw a fridge, two couches, two double beds and a stove. But you insist, I move paper cups all the time. That's our approach to the law. Jesus has moved the whole law for us. But we think we're going to contribute. We focus on one or two things that we find easy and light. And that puffs us up with some kind of lunatic sense of self-righteousness. And we delude ourselves into thinking that somehow we can keep the law. Somehow we can merit our Father's love with our righteousness and our goodness. We just ignore all the areas where we fail and we focus on the paper cups. God is saying to us, if you want to move house, you have to pull the whole trailer. That's what Jesus did. If you are now yoking yourself to the law as a means of becoming my child, then you are saying no to Jesus and you have to keep the whole law yourself. Not just the parts you like. Not just the parts you happen to think you're quite good at. The whole thing. To try and merit God's favor by law-keeping is an impossible burden because you have to keep the whole thing and you're never going to do it. It's a slavery. In the end, it's a slavery to despair when you recognize your failure. Or it's a slavery to a deluded, false sense of security and self-righteousness when you refuse to recognize your failure. When you just won't recognize your failure, and arguably that's a much more dangerous state to be in. Christ sets us free from all that because he kept the Lord. 
He kept the Lord. He moved the whole load. And now he says to us, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Don't hitch yourself to the law. Hitch yourself to Christ. Don't pretend the trailer is full of cups, paper cups. The yoke of the law is a slavery. But Christ has set you free. Second slavery is the judgment of the law. Look at chapter 5 verse 4. You who are trying to be declared righteous by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. You can't keep the whole law. I can't keep the whole law. Christ has done it for us. We are accepted on the basis of his merits. In a judicial declaration of the heavenly court, God gives you the legal status of Jesus himself. You are legally adopted into the family. You are a full citizen of the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ is your sponsor. It's called grace. If you then try to also approach the court on your own merits, then in Paul's words, and they are terrifying words, Christ is of no advantage to you. You are alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. In that situation, the law can only condemn you for the simple reason that you are not innocent. Somehow we seem to miss this fact. Here's how John Stott puts it. It is impossible to receive Christ, thereby acknowledging you cannot save yourself, and then receive circumcision, thereby claiming you can. You have got to choose between a religion of law and a religion of grace. It's either the religion of human achievement or the religion of divine achievement. You must choose. We can't have it both ways. Either Christ stands judgment for you, or you stand judgment for yourself. But there's only room in the dark for one. You can't have it both ways. If you yoke yourself to the law, you are chained to the law's judgment. You are a slave to condemnation. You are a slave to your guilt. You have rejected grace. Or... You can live in the freedom of Christ. Christ frees us from the yoke of the law. He frees us from the judgment of the law. And thirdly, he frees us from the performance of the law. Look at verse 6. For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Law keeping is a performance driven approach to God and to one another. And because it's performance driven, it must end in a hierarchy of performance because that's what we human beings do with performance. We measure ourselves and we measure one another. We rank one another. When it comes to religious performance, we separate ourselves out into those 
who happen to be ahead of me, very few, and those who are very much behind me, very many, it's insiders, me and those ahead of me, and outsiders, the, the rest. Insiders and outsiders. It's, it's a spiritual rewards program where it's only me and those like me who make it onto platinum. And the service provider is contractually bound to give us special treatment. Paul says, in Christ, none of that counts for anything. I mean, imagine going to the union buildings and saying to the officers on duty there, listen, I'm going into the president's office, and listen, it's fine, you can let me in, because look here, I've got more discovery points than anyone else in Midrand. They're going to laugh you out of Pretoria, let alone the union buildings. You do not want to rock up at the gates of heaven with your morality points. You get laughed out of eternity. They might give you a smoothie for the ride. There's only one insider. And he has to come out. He has to come outside to get the rest of us. If you stick to performance, it's a slavery that will kill you. And it will destroy your relationships. You're going to be running on a moral treadmill that never stops. It is exhausting. And, and here's the very dangerous thing, because it's so subtle. Very subtly. We never say this out loud, but very subtly you start to think you are better than those who are not running as hard as you're running. Worst of all, when the king comes to fetch you, in your heart of hearts, you won't really be convinced that you need his help. It's slavery. It divides us and it locks us up in separate cells based on our performance. But Christ has set us free. That's the law. We are sinners by nature. Because we sinners by nature, the law can only enslave us. If you try to live by the law, it will chain you, it will judge you, it will separate you from God and from, from others. If you live by faith in Christ, he will set you free. Now, brothers and sisters, you have Jesus. If you are trusting in him this morning, you have him. You have Christ. Let's get personal. What's the one area of your life where you're trying to add to him on the basis of your own performance? Where you're trying to add your righteousness to his? And be honest, God already knows. So be honest with yourself. For the Galatians, it was circumcision. What is it for you? Is it some sort of moral strictness in certain areas? Zealous service in other areas? Is it giving? Is it abstaining from certain things? How would you know what it is that you're adding to Jesus? Well, our emotions are a very good guide because we can't control them. Right? And adding to Jesus is an area that's going to make you angry. Right? You're going to get angry with God if he allows suffering in your life. Doesn't he see what I'm doing here? This abstinence, this, this performance, this service, 
It's going to make you angry with others if they don't acknowledge your effort and your performance. If they don't treat you with the respect you've earned. Cold, harsh judgment for those who don't apply the same effort in the same area with the same results. Now here's the hypocrisy of this whole thing. Here's the hypocrisy of our hearts. We will scold others for being inferior in this area. We will gossip about them for being inferior in this area, but we'll actually enjoy the fact that they are inferior because it means we're superior. Angry self-righteousness is one sign of adding something to Jesus. Devastation is another. If this area of moral performance was taken away because of some failure or because of some incapacity of some sort, it would devastate you. Why? Because this is your righteousness. It's how you show God and the world that you are worthy of respect, of dignity, of belonging. Whatever performance you are adding to Jesus, hear God in his word speaking to you this morning. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. We actually have to repent of our righteousness. We have to trust in the righteousness of Christ. He has set us free from the law. He's also set us free from sin. Paul gives the Galatians a whole catalog of sins that enslave. You heard the list there that Heather read for us. He calls them works of the flesh. Nothing much has changed in 2,000 years, so let's think about how these very same works of the flesh tend to enslave us. So look at verse 19. The works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, sorcery, hatred, discord, jealousy, Fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Strong words. There are broadly three categories there. Sensual sin, religious sin and social sin. What's common to all of them is that it says freedom on the box. And then when you open the box, what you find inside is a chain and shackles. Works of the flesh promise freedom. They all do. They promise freedom. What they deliver is slavery. Let's have a look at how this works in the three categories. So we start with sensual sins, sins of the senses. We find these ones at, listed at the top of Paul's list and then again at the bottom. It's basically sex, drugs, and rock and roll. What was the great promise of that revolution? Uh, some of us may have lived through it, the 60s and the 70s, but it endures to this day. The sex, drugs, and rock and roll revolution. What was the great promise? What did it promise? Freedom. It promised freedom. That was the fundamental thing that was being promised in that revolution. Come with us, we'll give you freedom. What did it deliver? We'll see. Sexual immorality is first on the list. Sexual immorality is any sex outside of the marriage of one man to one woman. On the biblical understanding, that is sexual immorality. Anything outside of marriage. Well, in our day and age, most sex is outside of marriage. 
And most people would welcome that as a freedom. But is it? I wonder what the counselors at the Mahal Center would say. Sexually transmitted diseases. Teenage pregnancies. A whole culture of rape. Prostitution. Insecurity in sexual relationships without any formal commitment. What kind of freedom is this? Impurity and debauchery are next. Those words basically mean fantasy, so they imply willing exposure to sexual imagination in word or image. In our, in our terms, pornography. Again, on the box, porn says freedom. Freedom of expression in the production of porn. Sexual freedom, freedom in the consumption of porn. But what we find in reality is the opposite. Three years ago, MasterCard and Visa actually stopped processing payments from the biggest online porn platform in the world because an investigation revealed how many of the girls in those videos were sex slaves. That's the production side. Actual physical slavery. On the consumption side, the scientific research is overwhelming. Porn dehumanizes women in male perception. So men begin to see women as sex animals rather than human moral agents made in the image of God. In men, porn also results in increased anxiety levels, decreased arousal, and increased impotence. For women, porn increases negative self-perception. For committed couples who watch porn together, actual sex becomes nothing more than bad porn. How ironic. Porn promises freedom through sexual satisfaction. What has it given us? We are left increasingly dissatisfied. Both in the production and in the consumption, porn promises freedom. It delivers slavery. And some of us here know from personal experience what that slavery is all about. If that's you, can I remind you there is freedom, true freedom in Christ. And can I plead with you, do not struggle alone. The same is true of alcohol. Drunkenness and orgies in Paul's language. We drink to feel free. Free from guilt, free from social constraint, free from personal inhibition. But if you drink enough, you don't regret less, you regret more. Drink enough, you're not more socially acceptable, you're less socially acceptable. You're not more integrated, you're less integrated. You're not more likable, you're less likable. Drink enough and you don't drink because you want to, you drink because you have to. It promises freedom, it delivers slavery. That's sensual sin. The same is true of religious sin. First up, Paul mentions idolatry. He says to the Galatians, don't use your freedom in Christ to worship false gods like the moon god Maine. And we say, how quaint, they worship the moon. How simple and primitive, shame. 
Question for us. Do we have any false gods on the side? Are we using the freedom Christ won with his own blood to sleep around spiritually? Are the loyalties and affections of our hearts divided? What are you passionate about? What stirs your deepest affections? Because that's what worship is. And if it's not God, then it's an idol. For modern suburban men, our false gods tend to be money, sex, and power. No surprises there. For women, it's relationships. Now, there's nothing wrong with enjoying any of those things. They are gifts from God. The question is this. Are they stepping stones on your worship of God? Are they pointers and signposts directing you towards the worship of God, or have they become the destination? Are you worshiping the giver, or are you worshiping the gifts in reality? How would you know? Well, here's a thought experiment. What if the gifts were taken away? Where would that leave you? If you lost your current lifestyle, and you had to downscale dramatically. If you were alienated from your child and the relationship broke down. Would you be beaten but not broken? Because your ultimate joy is in the Lord. And no one can take that away from you. No circumstance can take that away from you. So beaten, yes, but not broken. Or would you be utterly devastated because your true object of worship has been taken away? I'm sure I don't need to convince you that these good things can enslave us if they become objects of worship. Your job can own you. I'm sure I don't need to convince you. Your relationship with your spouse or your child can be a cruel master. It's idolatry. And Christ has set us free. Quick word on sorcery. That's the word that's used in the ESV translation, uh, witchcraft, I think, in the NIV. The Greek word is pharmakeia. It's where we get our word pharmacy. So remember that the next time you're running into Dischem. <laughs> in the Galatian context, sorcery would have included witchcraft, cursing, divination. Again, we're not so sophisticated that we've now evolved beyond those temptations. We're exactly the same. We have to be very careful that we do not use our freedom in Christ to dabble in spirituality on the side. The young people in our church tell me that the latest fad is to manifest. Have you heard that term? Maybe some of you had. You manifest something, right? So you want a promotion at work, you light a candle, and you manifest the promotion. Whatever that means. Okay, I think it's some combination of the power of positive thinking meets Eastern religions meets name it and claim it Christianity. When I think of manifesting, and again, I don't think I really understand what it is, but it reminds me of the seven sons of Siva in Acts. Remember those guys, those brothers? They thought they could go around wielding the power of God. Do you remember how the evil spirit answered them before he stripped them naked and beat them and sent them with their tails between their legs into the street. Do you remember what he said to them? Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize. But who are you? 
Brothers and sisters, who are we to manifest anything? Let me ask you, when does visiting a spiritual healer, a traditional healer, when does visiting a traditional healer become a spiritual exercise? When does acknowledging our ancestors cross over into communicating with our ancestors? When does corporate wellness become the practice of Buddhism? When does yoga become Hinduism? Now, I don't necessarily have the answers. We have to grapple together under the authority of God's word. We have to, we have to lean on each other. We have to glean the collective wisdom as we submit to God's word. One thing is crystal clear from what Paul is writing to the Galatians. And that's the warning. The warning couldn't be clearer. Do not use your freedom in Christ for any spirituality outside of the faith whatsoever. Don't do it. Sensual sin, spiritual sin, and finally social sin. The pressure of this controversy in the Galatian churches had obviously spilt over into all sorts of sinful division. Look at how the language Paul uses and how much language he devotes to describing this. Enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions. It's clearly something he's concerned about. There's no exaggeration to say that we as a church family could get so caught up in standing on our rights, in being vindicated, in wanting others to be publicly declared guilty and demanding apologies and pressing our views, we can get so caught up in it that it enslaves us. We could become slaves to conflict. I've seen it happen in other churches. I'm sure you have too. And that is a harsh slavery. That is hard labor of the worst kind. The devil wants nothing more. He wants nothing more. If he could tangle us up in some sort of division, and praise be to God, it hasn't happened in his goodness. But if he could tangle us up in some sort of division, the devil throws a party. So pressing my issue, demanding my rights, it sounds like freedom. But it ends in slavery. Is that what we're going to use our freedom in Christ for? Paul ends his list with this warning. I warn you. It's so helpful when he tells us what he's doing. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Can he be any clearer? It's just like the law. If you add the law to Jesus, in the end you lose Jesus. If you abuse the freedom of the kingdom for the flesh, for sin, in the end you show that you were never a citizen of the kingdom to begin with. Paul says Christ has set you free. Don't use that freedom to go back to the slavery of the law. Don't use that freedom for sin. It's just another kind of slavery. Now, as I said, we're going to talk in five weeks' time about what our freedom is for. So that's an important conversation we need to have. Okay, if our freedom is not for that, but what is it for? 
Today, we want to rejoice in our freedom from. That Christ has set us free. Set us free from slavery to the law. Set us free from slavery to sin. He has set us free. We rejoice in him. Two points very briefly in closing. First, to keep yourself from going back to slavery is a constant battle. Look there in verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And verse 18 goes on to say, and going back to the law is no option either. You're in a battle. The battle is real. We can see it in God's word. It's plain. We, we know it from our own experience as believers. This battle is real. Most of us are bouncing between seasons of legalism on the one hand and seasons of sin on the other. And you can go through that cycle in a single week. You can go through that cycle in a single day. Most of us are legalistic about some things, very strict about some things, and very loose about other things. The point is this. The battle is real and it is normal. In this life, freedom in Christ looks like a battlefield. If you are not in the battle, you are still in the prison of law or sin. If you're not in the battle, then you have a false sense of security and you need to be concerned. But in Christ, you are free. Free to fight the good fight. So just know that. If you feel like you're in a battle, it's normal. It's what the scriptures tell us to expect. And keep fighting the good fight. Keep clinging with every ounce of strength to Christ and the freedom you have in Christ. Finally, if we're getting pulled away to law on the one side and sin on the other side, how do we stay the course? What are we clinging to? What is the heart of our freedom? Well, we go back to the headline over the whole passage. It is Christ who has set us free. His cross is the heart of our freedom. Why? Because that cross reminds us that he died for our self-righteousness. He died for our self-righteousness, so there's no freedom there. And he also died for our sin, so there's no freedom there either. He lived and died to set us free in him. In him and him alone, we have freedom. Freedom from law, freedom from sin. Freedom to give him thanks and praise. Why don't you join me as we do that now in prayer. Father, we thank you, we praise you for the freedom we have in Christ. Help us to recognize it as the only true freedom there is. And please help us, Father, to see where we are pursuing counterfeit freedoms. Keep us, Father, keep us from dabbling in the slavery of law or sin. Help us by your spirit to fight that good fight. Help us by your spirit to walk in the freedom that is ours in Christ. And we pray this in his glorious name. Amen.